It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. I'm Janice Dean. I'm David Asman. I'm Dana Perino, and this is the Fox News Rundown. Monday, February 7th, 2022, on Mike Emanuel. Foreign policy is on the front burner right now, with Russia likely to invade Ukraine soon. And China hosting the Olympics, even though its regime has a horrible record on human rights. There should be tough action. We shouldn't turn a blind eye to human rights abuses. Everyone around the world, whether you're Republican or Democrat, should have had their arms in the air, hands ringing about how wrong this is. I'm Chris Foster. As President Biden promises more federal support, a progress report on the fight against cancer. We've always talked about someone being in remission from cancer, but meaning it, it could still be there. It's just we aren't seeing it yet. But now we're talking about we may be curing these cancers. And I'm Joe Concha. I've got the final word on the Fox News rundown. U.S. foreign policy is a red-hot topic right now in Washington. There's serious concern Russian President Vladimir Putin could order an invasion of Ukraine soon. National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan appeared on Fox News Sunday. Any day now, Russia could take military action against Ukraine, or it could be a couple of weeks from now, or Russia could choose to take the diplomatic path instead. The key thing is that the United States needs to be and is prepared for any of those contingencies in lockstep with our allies and partners. If Russia invades, Chairman of the Joint Chiefs General Mark Milley is predicting the Ukrainian capital could fall to Russian forces within 72 hours, with significant casualties suffered by the Ukrainian people. There's also the issue of the Winter Olympic Games taking place in Beijing right now, with great concern about the regime there's human rights record. Wyoming Republican Senator John Barrasso, a member of Senate Republican leadership, says seeing two of America's top adversaries together at the Olympics is a cause for concern. The picture that really tells the story is that picture from the Olympics of Putin and Xi, because Putin is the clear and present danger and she is the long-term threat. And to see the two of them standing in solidarity and seeming to be eager to double-team America is going to be a real test of President Biden's resolve. White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki notes President Biden made the call for a diplomatic boycott of the Olympics, so there's no VIP delegation on hand. The president made a very clear decision about not sending a diplomatic delegation. Obviously, that wasn't for security purposes. That was sending a clear message about human rights. With China's treatment of ethnic minority Uyghurs, with the world watching, the Chinese government had a Uyghur bring in the Olympic flame. Well, I mean, China clearly is trying to rebrand itself, right? They're doing it via the Olympics and showing how compassionate they are to the Uyghurs. And we all know the reality is there's a stark contrast to that. Republican Congresswoman Nancy Mace represents South Carolina's first congressional district. Our diplomatic boycott of China with our diplomats for the Beijing Olympics is sort of a joke, right? Because China doesn't care if our diplomats show up to watch the Olympic Games or not. We've got to do a better job with holding China accountable with their aggression, not only towards us, uh, but our allies, partners and friends around the world. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi warned American athletes to be careful about speaking out while they're in Beijing. Um, is that the right message or is that weak? 
Not at all. I mean, it is very much a project's weakness on a global scale for America to tell its athletes to, to not use, uh, to not protest in any way, shape, or form the human rights abuses of China while they're over there. I mean, it just goes to show you how crazy our relations are with China, that we allow them to do this, and that we should be scared of speaking our mind, that we should be scared of of speaking up against China while we're in China. What are we so afraid of? And we should reject, be projecting strength. Um, we should be looking at, and we've had two years to do this now, looking at all of our dependencies on China, and we should be lessening our dependencies on China so that they know that we're, uh, we're serious about holding them accountable for many atrocities. And COVID-19 has proven to us that we make too much, including our pharmaceuticals. 85% of pharmaceuticals are made there. What have we done in the last two years? Nothing but issue a memo on a piece of paper and say diplomats can't go to the Olympics. <laughs> Yet, meanwhile, China's hacking us and everyone else around the world, uh, you know, and we're not holding any of them accountable, nor uh, about the uh, origins of COVID-19. COVID-19 either. We haven't done anything. Should the United States look at putting the squeeze on the International Olympic Committee, basically saying, like, you can't just allow a country like China with all these human rights abuses to hold an Olympic Games and, you know, should there be some kind of action? Yeah, there should be tough action. We shouldn't turn a blind eye to human rights abuses. Everyone around the world, whether you're Republican or Democrat, should have had their arms in the air, hands ringing about how wrong this is. Basically, this is a silent endorsement of what's happening in China. And I think everybody, particularly in the business and private sector, we should be looking at trade with other countries, looking at ways to uh, to hurt China economically. Um, that's a real mechanism to hold them accountable and hold their feet to the fire, yet we're giving a silent endorsement by showing up and allowing the Olympics to be held there of all these human rights abuses. I'm wondering what you thought when you saw Vladimir Putin standing there with Xi Jinping in Beijing at the Olympics. Uh, cause for concern? Oh, absolutely. I mean, you look at the the relationship that China and Russia have. You look at what's going around the world with Ukraine and Russia, us turning our backs on the Asia Pacific region, and while we while this is potentially happening over in Eastern Europe, um, and they're they're allies. I mean, they have uh, alliances. Uh, they want to do America harm. They are not friends. They they are foes of ours right now. And um, the fact that we allow this to <clears throat> go on by having the Olympics here, by supporting it in Beijing, is just simply wrong. We know right now that there's a bipartisan effort in the U.S. Senate to impose what they're calling the mother of all sanctions against Russia for hostile behavior on the Ukrainian border. What do you hope would be in that package? Well, I would hope that there there would be sanctions. I mean, just two weeks ago, that the Russia spoke, Russian spokesperson said that sanctions against Russia by the U.S. because they have no U.S. assets, no U.S. assets, wouldn't mean anything to them. So it needs to be. I hope it'll be meaningful. We need to ensure that also our regulatory policy doesn't uh, make Russia any wealthier than it already is. So those are the things we should be looking at. Things that will actually hurt Putin's bottom line because he doesn't want that to happen. What do you make of China and Russia basically teaming up to say they would oppose any NATO expansion? Well, I mean, NATO expansion would cause war with Russia. In fact, I, I wrote about this the other day. Uh, we should hit pause on this. Uh, I don't think one drop of American blood should be shed over whether or not Ukraine enters NATO. Whether you agree with expanding NATO, whether you agree with Ukraine, and that we should allow them to enter NATO or not, now is not the time. It is not worth war with Russia. It's not worth American lives from a national security perspective. And focusing on that and going to, into conflict with Russia and Ukraine over Ukraine and NATO is not worth it. And it turns our back on 
other national, real national security issues that we have, it weakens us when China, as we know, wants to take over Taiwan any any day now, any week or year now. They, that is the plan. Um, and we have real issues in the Indo-Pacific region. And those issues affect our national security. They affect not only us, but our partners around the world. And those are the things that we should really be looking at. But right now, we're just turning a blind eye to most of that. Do you worry that after the Olympic Games, basically Russia's going to go into Ukraine and China's going to take Taiwan? They, they got what they wanted out of the Olympics and now they're ready to move I, forward I, with their agenda? I do. I do. And you can see, I mean, based on the messaging from China's embassy and their ambassador, they're watching what's going on in Ukraine. They watch what happened in Afghanistan and how bungled that was. But Ukraine is not a national security threat for us. I mean, we're sending more troops and we have troops that are there now that have been deployed from the United States that are ready to go over there. And yet our southern border is seeping with uh, illegal uh, immigrants, people who do pose and some of those do pose national security risks at our southern border. We're turning a blind eye to our border. We care more about Ukraine's border, yet we have no national security threat there. Yet along our southern border, we absolutely do. And so we really should put our interests first and not, you know, when we are looking at these issues, these are issues of life and death. We have young men and women in uniform that are over there now willing to sacrifice their life. And for what? And is what we should be asking ourselves. Why are we doing this now when China is being so aggressive uh, from a cyber perspective, from uh, the issues we have with Taiwan? I mean, it's just it's a serious threat. And that's a threat we should be taking seriously right now. Ukraine is, is not it right now. A U.S. special forces raid resulted in the death of a top terrorist within ISIS hiding out in Syria. The president said the operation was a testament to America's reach and capability to take out terrorist threats. Your reaction to that raid? Well, you know, I'm, I'm very grateful that all Americans were returned safely from this operation. I'm glad to see that there's an ISIS leader that has been killed. They want death to America, as we all know. But we have almost a thousand Americans in Syria and that part of the region. And, I, and they were first deployed out there in 2014-15 under the Obama administration. Syria is another forgotten battlefield in the war on global terror. And so I would like us and ask the administration is what exactly are American troops doing there? What do we need to accomplish? And how can we exit out of Syria without abandoning Kurdish allies to be slaughtered? And so those are the questions we should really be asking ourselves. And I think we've seen over the past couple of decades that when you take out a top terror figure, it's kind of like the next lieutenant steps up, next guy up, if you will, mm -hmm. to lead the group, right? So you expect that ISIS will still continue even if the oh, dangerous guy may be gone, yeah. right? I mean, this has been going on for hundreds, if not thousands of years. Uh, this problem is not going away. We know before we entered Afghanistan that Afghanistan was going to be difficult and would be lost. And we spent 20 years, trillions of dollars and lost thousands of lives. And so... Uh, we should really look at history when we're making these kinds of decisions. And we've done a lot of damage around the world as much as we've kept people safe and really ought to think about long term what our strategy is going to be in these regions of the world. I'd like to ask you something about you. Um, mm -hmm. You've been open about the fact that you got COVID for a second time after one of your children tested positive uh, in January. And so I know the first time you had it was pretty rough. Um, I'm wondering how your reflections are now that you've had COVID twice and how bad was it the second time? Uh, I think I had Omicron based on the symptoms. It ripped through our entire family. It was milder, but I did struggle. I had a day where I struggled to breathe. I had a blood oxygen level of about 85. And I will tell you about a month later, I still have 
some symptoms. I still have a dry cough and a few other symptoms a month later. So while it is mild, it's still a pain and it's uh, it's annoying to have, but not nearly as bad as the first time. And um, what they're saying today is if you're vaccinated, your chances of serious illness or death are greatly reduced by being vaccinated. So um, I think we can be grateful for the strong numbers uh, for those that have been able to stay out of the hospital with Omicron. But the sheer fact that it just spreads so quickly, so fast, it has affected a lot more people. But I'm doing better today. I hate I hate COVID. <laughs> Absolutely hate it. I have asthma now as a result of having COVID the first time. Uh, I don't enjoy it and don't wish it upon anybody. But at the same time, we've got to be able to move on with our lives, keep our kids in school and be able to go to work and have a normal life. And that's what we all should be fighting for. So you tested positive the first time Mm -hmm. in June 2020. You were fully vaccinated spring of 2021. And then you got Omicron uh, January 2022. Um, Golly, I mean, that's got to be frustrating because you're a healthy person otherwise. I am. Yeah, very healthy. And I was I mean, I was a cyclist before I had COVID training for triathlons. And I uh, I'm unable to do that today, a year and a half later. Um, it is very frustrating. It's frustrating to be vaccinated and still get COVID-19. Um, all of those are frustrating, but just goes to show and prove that we have a lot more work to do. We should be looking at prophylactically what can we be taking um, over the counter or prescription to prevent us from having a serious case of COVID-19, including vaccinations. And we should be looking at what are the therapeutics. It's a serious illness, and we should be taking every option. Literally every option should be on the table. If it saves life or we think it does, and we should allow people uh, that option to try try to keep folks out of the hospital and keep them healthier than they otherwise would be. Well, thank you for sharing that uh, personal perspective. I'm grateful, and I'm glad you're feeling much better. Congresswoman Nancy Mesa, the great state of South Carolina, my best to you and your family and, of course, your constituents as well. Thank you. Likewise, Mike. Have a great day. From the Fox News Podcasts Network, subscribe and listen to the Trey Gowdy Podcast. Former federal prosecutor and four-term U.S. congressman from South Carolina brings you a -a one-of-a-kind podcast. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. This is Joe Concha with your Fox News commentary coming up. President Biden announced last week the relaunch of what's being called a cancer moonshot, an initiative to fight all forms of the disease and reduce death rates by 50 percent over 25 years. I know of nothing, as I think my colleagues would say, that's more bipartisan than take on this fight and fundamentally change cancer as we know it. It's a mission that can truly unify the nation. He's putting together what he calls a cancer cabinet of people from different government agencies. The president lost his son, Bo, to brain cancer in 2015. President Obama announced the Cancer Moonshot Initiative in January of 2016, with then-Vice President Biden in charge. That December, Congress authorized funding that's due to expire after next year. The um, Cancer Moonshot came with funding and had a lot of hope for researchers and scientists and physicians and patients because all of a sudden there's going to be an influx of money and funding. Dr. Nicole Sapphire is a Fox News medical contributor with Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center in New York and New Jersey. That is really what is always lacking when it comes to research is funding. Well, the the latest update from President Biden, while it... Um, it's encouraging. It's exciting. He's talking about wanting to reduce the mortality rate from cancer. It doesn't come with funding. And while we could want to do so much, 
without funding, it will be difficult to further some of the biggest advancements that we, you know, that we really need. We threw an awful lot of money as a nation um, at this coronavirus pandemic. And I wonder why there isn't the appetite for throwing that kind of money at something that affects more people and will continue to affect more people long after the pandemic's gone. Well, you're absolutely right. And look at what happened with Operation Warp Speed. You essentially took an impossible getting a vaccine to market um, in a year's time. And it happened. But why did it happen? It happened because it was all hands on deck and it came in parallel with a massive amount of funding. Now, the cancer is not the coronavirus in the sense that it is not one size fits all. It is not black and white. You can't just say oh, we're going to cure cancer. And I'll be honest, every time that I have heard President Biden say that we're going to end cancer, we're curing cancer. It's almost a slap in the face to people who work in cancer care every single day because it's not a lack of trying. You know, we've been trying for a long time to diagnose cancer early, to improve treatments and to get people to do anything they can to prevent cancer. There's not it, there's not one thing that you can do. I mean, here we are. Cancer still remains the second leading cause of death in the United States, secondary to cardiovascular disease or heart disease. Now, over the last two decades, death rates have decreased from cancer. That's because people have stopped smoking. And we've also improved our early detection through screening, as well as we've had advancements in treatments. But we need to do more than that. I can tell you anywhere from 40 to 50% of cancer could still be prevented. That's an that's a that's a shockingly high amount of disease that could be prevented. While we always like to talk about, oh, what are the latest treatments or what are the latest technological advances? Those are all great. And we need those because there will always be disease that comes whether you um, do everything you can to prevent it or not. There will always be disease. There will always be a need for treatment. But our focus needs to go a bit more on the prevention side through continuing smoking cessation programs and encouraging people to just eat better. You know, uh, smoking, alcohol, and being overweight, three leading causes of preventable cancer. That's where the focus needs to be right now. Yeah, I mean, this uh, this initiative's goal, this Moonshot's goal to reduce the cancer rate by 50% in 25 years, you're saying that we could come pretty close to that on our own with where we stand now. You know, that's uh, my first book, Make America Healthy Again. That was entirely what it was about. I essentially said, hey, the government can't fix this for all of us. We need to do our part as individuals as to help our own health, but also our societal health, because healthcare is extremely expensive. And whether you want single payer, or you want privatized health insurance, nothing's going to work as long as we have so much preventable illness out there. And unfortunately we do. And it doesn't take becoming a fitness guru or being on a strict diet to get there. We can all be doing just a little bit better. We could all be eating a little bit healthier. We could be drinking less alcohol and we could be exercising more. And so while we have some incredible treatments on the forefront in cancer, one of the biggest just came out. It was some data from a long-term study. Mind you, it only involved two patients. So, you know, you have to take it what you will. But the fact that we potentially have cures for leukemias and lymphomas and other cancers, that's a big deal. And we don't want to stop pursuing those cures and pursuing those treatments. And But I also want to make sure that we are in parallel working on preventing illness. 
uh, the treatment you're talking about? Are you talking about the gene therapy? And if so, explain it to me and everybody listening. That's right. So CAR-T, C-A-R-T, essentially what we're doing is we're removing the immune cells, the T cells from a person with cancer. We all know about T cells now. We've heard about them a lot with COVID. But in someone who has cancer, you're actually taking their T cells and you're genetically altering them so that they can produce proteins. And so then you give them back to that patient. And now that patient is fighting the cancer themselves. And this was groundbreaking 10 years ago when it came out. We were starting to see treatments in leukemias and lymphomas that have otherwise been resistant to some treatments. And what was just published is the two two of the first people who received this treatment, they just published 10-year data showing that there was still no sign of their cancer. And that means we've always talked about someone being in remission from cancer, but meaning it it could still be there. It's just we aren't seeing it yet. But now we're talking about we may be curing these cancers and curing is an incredible thing when you're talking about cancer. And it's very exciting. And another thing that has been coming out ever since Operation Warp Speed and COVID is the utilization of mRNA vaccines to prevent cancer. And not just prevent cancer and people who are high risk for developing cancer, but people who have had cancer, can we prevent their cancer from coming back? And we have several studies across the country looking at using mRNA vaccines for multiple different types of cancers. And while we're not gonna have this readily available in the next few months, I can tell you that um, preventing cancer recurrence is by vaccination is something very exciting and will be in our lifetime. We will see it. Yeah, I mean, part of the criticism from some circles about these coronavirus vaccines is that, oh, my God, they were developed so quickly. Who knows? But actually, this technology has been it's been worked on for for years now. It just didn't have the, the, the funding and the manpower behind it to really jumpstart it. Right. And if you're saying that something actually could come out of this tragedy, if these vaccines or something like them can be used for cancer treatment. MRNA technology has been around for decades, but the one thing that has been missing was funding. And President Trump, through Operation Warp Speed, said, how can we not get cures to people because of money? Get them get them what they need. And he he facilitated the funding. And all of a sudden, mRNA vaccine technology got the funding it needed. And thank goodness it's not only being targeted to COVID and it's actually going to places that will have even more long-term benefit and gain being utilized outside of just COVID, but in cancer care. We've already seen what a vaccine can do to cancer rates talking about the HPV vaccine and its ability to decrease cervical cancer diagnoses by over 90%. You have countries such as Australia, because they mandated an HPV vaccine in adolescence, they've nearly eradicated cervical cancer from their country. And you have other countries doing similar initiatives, the UK and elsewhere. The United States is a little bit slower. We do have more hesitancy around some of the vaccines and that's okay, it's understandable. But we need to be able to explain to people why it's so important. And I can tell you, cervical cancer, over 90% of them, again, are due to this virus. If you are able to prevent this viral infection and subsequent cervical cancer, you are saving lives. And it's not just cervical cancer. There are so many other cancers that are linked to HPV, head and neck cancers, um, as well as others. And so 
by preventing this viral infection, you are in turn also preventing certain cancers from down the road. So, Nicole, when you when people are now told, I'm sorry, you have cancer, that's different now than it was 10, 20, 30, 40 years ago, right? I mean, more and more and more. It's a it's not a, I'm sorry, you have cancer. You have X months, years to live. It's you have cancer. Here's how we're going to attack it. So I give a cancer diagnosis to someone every single day. And it doesn't get easier the more you give. But I can tell you that giving a cancer diagnosis today is very different than it was five years ago, 10 years ago, 20 years ago. And one of the things that I say to people are, you know, you have cancer, but we're going to take care of you. And for the majority of cases, when we have found it early, I say to them, by this time next year, all of this chaos is going to be a part of your past because there's so much we can do. But with that comes the importance of early detection through the screening programs, mammography screening, lung cancer screening for those high risk, colon cancer, uh, skin cancer screening, all of these, we have the ability to diagnose these cancers early. And the earlier you diagnose them, the better the survival rates are. But even with those early diagnosis, you are still going to see some later stage diagnosis. And while those treatments will be more invasive, more aggressive, we still have the ability to prolong someone's life and give them the chance of seeing their children graduate from school, uh, father walking their daughter down the aisle. And it is because of this um, that a cancer diagnosis, um, while it is still devastating and will affect everyone differently, there is hope. Dr. Nicole Sapphire with Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center in New York and New Jersey. She's a, a best-selling author and a Fox News medical contributor. Dr. Sapphire, thank you very much. Thanks so much for having me. Here's a look at the week ahead. Monday. President Biden is scheduled to host a White House meeting with German Chancellor Olaf Scholz. Administration officials say the two are expected to discuss tensions with Russia over its troop buildup on the Ukraine border, along with the pandemic, security, climate change, and economic issues. Wednesday. Bidding ends for a rare 555.55 carat black diamond dubbed the Enigma at the British auction house Sotheby's. The firm announced it will accept cryptocurrency after its success using the payment option in a diamond sale last July. Thursday. Russia and Belarus are set to begin the second phase of joint military exercises. The action comes amid continued tensions over Moscow's buildup of troops along the Ukraine border. Friday. Almost 4,000 unvaccinated New York City employees, including cops and firefighters, could be fired if they're not vaccinated by the end of the day. The city's vaccine mandate for employees took effect in November of last year. And that's a look at your week ahead. I'm Rich Dennison, Fox News. the news now you can with instant updates from fox news for amazon alexa just say alexa play news from fox in fox news it's the latest when you need it on demand from fox news and amazon alexa rate and review the fox news rundown on apple podcasts or wherever you listen it's time for your fox news commentary joe concha what's on your mind 
As you may have heard, the 46th president had a rough first year. Inflation at a 40-year high. 16 cities setting homicide records last year. COVID still running rampant with tests hard to come by. A southern border that's essentially wide open. Parents turning on his party on education of all things. In Afghanistan, becoming a terrorist playground after a deadly and disastrous withdrawal in August. But hey, besides that, well, here's the good news. In his first year in office, Bill Clinton was at just 37% approval. But he pivoted to the center, passing welfare reform, along with Republicans and Democrats in the House and Senate, and declaring the era of big government being over. He won re-election quite easily in 1996, while sitting at 60% approval. So, can this president pivot? Well, right now, he's staying on the same road, and until he does pivot, it's going to be a red tsunami in the midterms in November. I'm Joe Concha. You've been listening to the Fox News Rundown. Rundown. Stay up to date by subscribing to this podcast at foxnewspodcasts.com. And for up-to-the-minute news, go to foxnews.com. From the Fox News Podcasts Network. I'm Ben Domenech, publisher of The Federalist, and I'm inviting you to join a new conversation with the smartest thinkers out there about the country and where we're going. Subscribe to the Ben Domenech Podcast. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. From the Fox News Podcasts Network. Hey there, it's me, Kennedy. Make sure to check out my podcast, Kennedy Saves the World. It is five days a week, every week. Download and listen at foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you listen to your favorite podcast. 